Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Hello, I'm Philippa Webb, and I'm here in Oxford with Professor Dapo Akande. Professor Marko Milanovic is in Belgrade, and we are joined by two contributors to the blog, Mike Becker, Adjunct Assistant Professor at Trinity College Dublin, coming in from County Carlo, and Rebecca Barber, Research Fellow with the Asia-Pacific Centre for the Responsibility to Protect in Brisbane. Welcome. We are recording this podcast on Friday the 4th of March, and this is important to note because the situation is very dynamic. Our topic today is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. When we organised this recording just over a week ago, we actually had a completely different topic to discuss. But that would feel tangential now, as do most things in the face of what is happening in Ukraine. There is a lot being written, there is a lot being said by international lawyers on this topic. There's also been a wave of international legal interventions, the ICJ, the ICC, the European Court of Human Rights. Poland has opened an investigation into the crime of aggressive war under its universal jurisdiction law. And there will be a launch of a declaration seeking to create a special criminal tribunal to try those responsible for aggression in Ukraine today. So this could be a 10-part and counting series of episodes, but we don't have all day, so we will focus, and our focus is on the response of international institutions to this shocking violation of the international legal order. But before we get into that, let's have a quick overview of the use of force issues at stake. Marco, how have we moved on from a claim of a special military operation in Donbass made last week? Well, I mean, special military operation is not, of course, a term of art in international law. The term of art is the use of force, uh, uh, something that is prohibited between states by Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter. The burden is on a state using force to justify using force. President Putin did that in his speech uh, on the eve of the invasion. Um, A sort of wonderful curiosity, if you will, is that a few days later, the Russian government submitted its Article 51 letter to the Security Council, and the letter was literally attaching Putin's speech. So that is the formal justification (laughs) of the Russian Federation for using force. If you read that speech, which which I analyzed on the blog, basically what comes out of it is sort of a mix of several different possible justifications. Uh, One is some kind of very preventive self-defense of Russia against some kind of uh, future threat coming from Ukraine. Uh, Another is collective self-defense of the uh, two separatist uh, republics in Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, which are supposedly being attacked by, by, uh, by Ukraine. And the third is some kind of humanitarian intervention preventing genocide rationale, which we'll we'll come back Mm. to later. But if you want to look at it really Formally, I think the only justification they're really offering is the collective self-defense of of the two republics. Um, Now, that sort of falls flat on its face for two basic reasons. Mm -hmm. One is that the two republics are not states and they're not under attack. Uh, But even if they were, 
the Russian response is so overwhelming, so broad, so large in scale, that it could not possibly be justified as being necessary and proportionate within the bounds of self-defense. So even if you accept the claim that these are states and that they're being attacked by Ukraine unlawfully, you cannot you know, justify invading the whole of Ukraine and toppling its government, which is what Russia seems to be doing. And so what we really have here is a sort of fictitious, pretextual kind of argument for justifying an unlawful use of force that would be regarded, I think, by most as aggression. So the most grave, grave, the most serious form of unlawful use of force. And in fact, the General Assembly has condemned it as such. And, you know, my point would be sort of, if this is not aggression, Mm. then what is? The interesting thing, though, is that if you look at how Western states mainly shaped the crime of aggression, the definition of the crime for the purpose of the Rome Statute, so Article 8 bis, you know, they talk about, so, so that article talks about the crime of aggression being an act of aggression, which by its character, gravity, and scale constitutes a manifest violation of the charter. And all those Weasley words were put in there precisely in order to allow states that like using force, like the UK, US, and so on and so forth, to sort of escape that by saying, oh, we have a plausible argument that our use of force is lawful. And now if, say, I don't know, Putin has ever tried, (laughs) you know, on the basis of that provision, I'm wondering whether those Weasley words would allow him to say, well, this is not a manifest violation of the charter. Well, I think we're going to to come back to the potential trial of President Putin. So um, we'll we'll come back to, to that idea and his potential arguments and jurisdiction. But you did mention the General Assembly's condemnation, and I wanted to turn to Rebecca on the role that the General Assembly has been taking uh, against the, the Russian aggression. Can Can you talk us through what they've done and what potentially they could do more? Yeah, thanks, Pete. So I think maybe before getting to the role of the General Assembly and what the General Assembly has done and can do, it's probably useful to start by reflecting just briefly on the way in which the matter of Ukraine came to the General Assembly in the first place. So as we all know, the situation was referred to the General Assembly by the Security Council pursuant to what is known as the Uniting for Peace procedure. Uniting for Peace was a resolution passed by the General Assembly in 1950, which said that if the Security Council is unable to fulfil its responsibilities because of a lack of unanimity amongst its permanent members, then the General Assembly can meet in emergency special session and consider the matter and recommend appropriate measures. And that resolution said that an emergency special session could be called by a majority of the Security Council and a resolution by the Security Council calling for an emergency special session of the General Assembly is a procedural resolution and so not subject to the veto. So basically, the Uniting for Peace resolution provides a procedural framework for the Security Council to refer a matter to the General Assembly when the Security Council is blocked. I think what's important to note is that it's not the referral from the Security Council or the Uniting for Peace resolution that provides the General Assembly with its powers. It's the UN Charter that provides the General Assembly with its powers. The UN Charter explicitly empowers the General Assembly to make a resolution 
on, sorry, to make recommendations on matters of international peace and security. And the only really significant restriction on the General Assembly's powers are that its recommendations are non-binding. Those powers don't change and they're not enhanced just because a matter has been referred to the Assembly by the Security Council. I've seen it said a couple of times in posts in the last week or so that General Assembly resolutions passed in emergency special session carry more weight. I don't know whether or not that's true. Perhaps others have views. But I think that's um, that what's probably more important is that if the Security Council explicitly invokes the Uniting for Peace resolution and explicitly acknowledges the Council's failure to fulfil its responsibilities for international peace and security and calls for an emergency special session of the General Assembly, that makes a very strong statement and gets a lot of attention, as we've seen in the past week much more so probably than the General Assembly just meeting in regular session on Ukraine. So you asked to answer your question about the resolution. I think there's no question that the General Assembly resolution was a huge achievement for its sponsors, was passed with a very strong majority, and I think that that sends us a very powerful signal regarding the extent to which the world is united in its outrage about Russia's aggression and in its support of Ukraine. But I think it's also important to keep sight of the fact that there are many more substantive options that are available to the General Assembly should it choose to take further steps. Um, And there's been a couple of quite good blogs on this in the past week. There was a really good piece by Larry Johnson in Just Security and there was a good statement that the International Crisis Group put out outlining some quite practical sensible things that the General Assembly could do. But just before we get into that, which we definitely want to discuss, just going back to the resolution for a moment, was there anything in it that you would have expected to see that wasn't there? Or was it as you expected? And were the numbers, I think it was 141 um, voting in favour, five against and 35 abstentions. Was that also something that you expected? Um, In terms of what was in there, I think it's pretty much what I would have expected. So the resolution deplored Russia's act of aggression. It demanded that Russia immediately cease its use of force and it demanded that Russia withdraw its forces from Ukraine, various other things, but I think they were probably the most most significant ones. The General Assembly could have done a lot more, um, which I think we can talk about, Um, and, you know, let's hope possibly it will do so in the future if there is a need. But I don't think I would have expected um, anything much more substantial or robust um, than those sort of general condemnations in the first General Assembly resolution. I think there's always in these situations a huge focus on getting a really strong majority um, and there's obviously a lot of compromise in getting a strong majority and I think 141 in favour to five against with 35 abstentions and I think that's a that's a pretty big achievement um really particularly the only five against okay Uh, one interesting uh point i I found about the the vote on the resolution this week um as as uh, you pointed out 141 to 5 with 35 abstentions it's interesting to compare that to how the general assembly responded to the resolution in response to the purported annexation of crimea 
back in 2014. That was resolution 68-262. Uh, and there we had uh, a, still a strong result. It was 100 votes approving that resolution versus 11 votes against. But then we had that really striking number of 58 abstentions. So quite a significant number of states, nearly a third of the of the plenary not willing to take a position. So I think that that just speaks to maybe the different overall response that the world is having to this kind of uh, naked act of aggression versus a situation that still seemed in 2014 like a pretty flagrant violation of all sorts of norms, but something that states weren't necessarily willing to take um, a lot of states, anyway, weren't willing to take the same uh, position on, and we saw that as well in the in the response. Uh, uh, a res- there was a strong response to Crimea, but not nearly as strong a response as we're seeing now. Can I jump in on this point? So one interesting thing, of course, is that this resolution, unlike the Crimea one, expressly uses the term aggression. Mm. And yes, there is unity, but there is also one big note of concern which is that if you look at the map of the world, sort of, half of Africa, half of Asia have not voted for this. Yeah? And that tells you that even in the face of the most blatant act of aggression, certainly since Iraq, but probably even since World War II, the uniting thing is only uniting up to a point. You see what I mean? And so we do need to be a tad sort of cautious about the extent of unanimity on this and to what extent that unanimity will persevere. Absolutely. There was some interesting reporting in the New York Times yesterday, actually looking at that specific question of why such um, mixed support from uh, states in Africa in particular. Um, And the two main explanations seem to be uh, Russia's uh, extensive efforts to create economic ties with uh, certain African states over the last uh, many years. And then also, and this is um, maybe harder to uh, understand in some ways, but certain states, and this was in particular the case with South Africa, a kind of historical um, sense of, uh, of loyalty or um, uh, solidarity because of the stance that the Soviet Union took um, with respect to apartheid and in general with um, uh, colonial uh, uh, national liberation movements. So can I just come in on this issue of the role of the GA? We spent a bit of time talking about what the General Assembly has done, and Rebecca has indicated that the General Assembly can do more. Is this of any significance, what the GA is doing, beyond just the fact that it's a forum in which states can express their views? Is there anything more, actually, that the General Assembly can, in fact, do? Yeah, I'll jump in on that because I think I think that's a really important question because in terms of the relevance of the General Assembly, I think the resolution that we have seen thus far is a really important statement of solidarity, of well, not complete solidarity, but of condemnation, but it didn't really do anything substantive. So there are other options available to the General Assembly that go beyond simply condemning Russia's aggression. I think the first one that is probably worth putting out there is that it can call upon states to support Ukraine in the exercise of its right of self-defence. It's squarely within the competence of the General Assembly to recommend that states use force in a manner that is in any case lawful with or without a General Assembly resolution, i.e. the case of collective self-defence. 
And the General Assembly has made such recommendations before, for example, in response to South African aggression against neighbouring African states in the 1980s, and also in response to Bosnia and Herzegovina um, in the 1990s. And I think there's a, there's a couple of other examples as well as when, of when the General Assembly has previously recommended to states that they support another state in the exercise of its right of self-defence. So I think that's, that's the first one. The second one I would mention is that the General Assembly can recommend sanctions and there's obviously been um, a lot of discussion about this recently. The General Assembly has recommended all sorts of sanctions in the past in a whole range of different contexts. Um, It's recommended boycotts on trade, arms embargoes, the severance of diplomatic relations and other quite specific measures such as shutting off access to ports and airports, banning sports teams, all sorts of other things. In the case of Russia, obviously, many states are imposing sanctions anyway, but a General Assembly resolution could encourage other states to come on board, and it could also feasibly increase the likelihood of coherence and consistency in the sanctions that are being imposed. And I think the other thing that a General Assembly sanctions recommendation could feasibly do is take the opportunity to emphasise the importance of sanctioning states complying with their international legal obligations, for example, by ensuring that sanctions don't negatively impact human rights in Russia. And that's something that when the General Assembly has made recommendations to states in the past that they impose autonomous sanctions, it hasn't typically taken the opportunity to do. There's a few other um, options sort of out there that the General Assembly could potentially pursue. It can call on the Secretary General to exercise his good offices in an attempt to advance a political solution or to promote compliance with international humanitarian law or various other things. There have been a number of examples in the past where the General Assembly has called upon the Secretary General to exercise his good offices with varying degrees of success. Um, The General Assembly could establish an accountability mechanism of some sort, but it's unlikely to be um, relevant in this case if the Human Rights Council establishes such a mechanism. I just touched briefly on the option that I discussed in one of my blogs this week regarding the possibility of the General Assembly suspending Russia from the UN. I mentioned Larry Johnson's post before on the options for the General Assembly on just security. On the option of suspending Russia, he referred to that as a rabbit hole and said that there was no need to waste our time on it. So I don't want to waste much time. But I do think that the situation with which we are faced warrants all legally available options being on the table. And when Larry Johnson was referring to this option as a rabbit hole, he was specifically talking about the option of Russia being suspended from the UN pursuant to Article 5 of the UN Charter or expelled pursuant to Article 6. And both of those require recommendation of the Security Council. So definitely they are rabbit holes, absolute non-starters. But the option that is available is for the General Assembly to reject the credentials of Russia's representative to the General Assembly, which could have the effect of temporarily excluding Russia from participation in the General Assembly. It wouldn't be a suspension in name, but it would be in effect. The only time this option has really been used, and I talked about in this much in this my, in my blog, um, in vaguely comparable circumstances is South Africa in 1974 when it was used 
to protest against South Africa's policy of apartheid. Whether it's allowable for the General Assembly to do this is very open <laughs> open to question and it probably would never actually happen, but I just think that it's worth having all these options on the table. Can I just ask Rebecca, you know, so if the GA were actually to um, reject the Russian credentials, what effect would that have, though, on the Security Council? Because I'm wondering, isn't the key point about Russia's participation in the Security Council? Because I can see one advantage to this, you know, we're going to talk about accountability options. So, for example, right, you could do, say, a referral on the crime of aggression to the ICC if you could get the Security Council on board. Of course, you can't do it with a Russian veto. If Russia's not there because, you know, their credentials are rejected, then you could do it. You know, the things, it's a la Korea. Russia not being in the Security Council allows you to do things. But can that actually work via the General Assembly rejecting credentials? So I'm not sure that that is possible to really answer that question because there's simply no precedent to go by. I think the uh, so there's a General Assembly resolution on credentials and representation in the organs of the UN, which said says that the same procedure as adopted by the General Assembly should be followed in the other organs of the UN. Um, so that means ideally, if the General Assembly rejects the credentials of a representative, for example, then other parts of the UN, whether it be the Economic and Social Council or the Human Rights Council, would follow the same approach. Whether that results in a member being excluded from participation in the Security Council, I, honestly, I don't know how to answer that question. And it wasn't something tested in the South Africa case, obviously. But speaking of the Security Council, let's let's move institutions for a moment because as Dapo's question I think rightly points out, that's you know, that's where the power is at well the potential power, but that's where we're blocked at the moment because of Russia being a P5 member and already showing its willingness to exercise its veto uh, to block any uh substantive action uh in regard to uh Ukraine. Um so there is a provision of the Charter here as well that has been um, a bit of a dead letter or periodically revived, uh, Article 27.3, which imposes an obligation on Security Council members to abstain from voting if they are a party to the dispute that is the subject of the vote. Um, Two comments on that. Um, The obligation to abstain only applies to Chapter 6 and Article 52.3, which deals with regional arrangements and agency. So it, it doesn't textually apply to Chapter 7, which is where real action, coercive action can be taken. And the second point is, as I said, this has been a largely dormant provision. I think the last time it was expressly Uh, used was in 1960 when Argentina, then a a member of the council, did not participate in a resolution regarding the capture of Eichmann and his trial in Israel. Um, So many, many decades have passed and uh, Russia in 2014 did not abstain from voting and vetoing a resolution in Crimea and the rest of the P5 uh, was silent in the face of that. Um, failure to abstain. So uh, what are the views of others? Is is Article 27.3 ready to be revived? And, and if it was, could it help? No. No. 
I mean, let's not sort of go into fantasy La La Land, right? So this is all by design. This is the design of the charter to privilege the five winners of the war to create an unequal system. That's what it is. And there is no way through the Security Council of essentially, un- unless you want to completely disrupt the United Nations system, of, of going against Russia, basically. So the, the bottom line is that until there is regime change in Russia, if that ever happens, the Security Council is powerless. And that's by design. Mm. And the same would apply if it were, we were talking about the United States or about the UK or France or China. And that's just how it is. The, 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 the issue is whether we should use other parts of the UN system to sort of attack sort of that injustice, like that inequality. And so one option would be indeed to go to the General Assembly and to ask the General Assembly to go to the ICJ to ask the court for an advisory opinion on multiple issues. One issue would be the substantive issue of whether Russia is committing aggression in attacking Ukraine. I think that would be good. You know, Another would be to challenge the legality of a veto, right? to essentially ask the court to say something about whether veto is simply a discretionary power or whether using a veto, whether voting in the council can be internationally wrongful. Mm-hmm. I think there's a real risk with that uh, second uh, idea that Marco puts forward because I'm uh, not at all confident that the ICJ would give uh, people the answer that they might mm-hmm. want to, to get on that. Um, so then you've um, perhaps made your situation uh, marginally worse in some way. That's right. And on your first point, Marco, about whether this is aggression, doesn't that really make a mockery of the advisory procedure being used in what are contentious disputes that don't have a, a jurisdictional basis? Yes, I mean, and, and those objections have been made in, in all sorts of advisory cases before the yeah. ICJ, and the ICJ has always rejected that particular objection. Eastern Karelia. Especially when you're dealing with <laughs> a land war in Europe, there's just no way in hell the ICJ would say, oh, you know, we're exercising our discretion not to answer this question, right? Yeah. The question would be, what will they say? But Remember, you know, the primary sort of interest of the court is that they look good. (laughs) They don't want to look too cowardly. And they would look so cowardly if they refused to answer that type of question. But then, you know, just stepping back from it all, and this also links with, you know, the action we were talking about under the General Assembly. General Assembly, ultimately, it's a recommendation. Advisory opinion, ultimately, it's non-binding. So should this be where our limited... Uh, and finite legal, intellectual, economic, and political and diplomatic resources be focused? Or, as you know, Marco's hinted at, do we need to look to other bodies? Um, and I wanted to, to ask Mike to talk to us about the ICJ case that's been brought by Ukraine against Russia that will be heard next week. Sure. Um, so on the 26th of February, Ukraine initiated these proceedings bringing a case at the ICJ under the 1948 Genocide Convention. And Ukraine has also requested provisional measures. So the court has moved quite quickly to schedule the hearings on that. And indeed, that will take place on uh, 7th and 8th of of March next week. Um, And on top of that, President Donahue uh, sent an urgent communication to Russia this week, calling upon Russia to act in such a way as to, this is the language of the court, to enable any subsequent order by the court to have its appropriate effect. And that's very kind of a staid language 
but that's the language of Article 74.4 of the court's rules, which uh, President Donahue is acting under. And normally, um, the president of the court only um, you know, makes those types of communications on a pending provisional measures request in situations of life and death. So that, exp that helps explain why she's done that. We saw that uh, most recently, I think, in the, in the Jadav case a few years ago. Um, anyway, so what's all this about? Um, it's really important to understand the posture of this case because it's quite unusual in some ways. Um, Ukraine is not asking for the court to find that Russia is committing genocide. I mean, that's what people might think when they hear that Ukraine has brought a case under the Genocide Convention. Instead, Ukraine's focus here is on the fact that Russia has accused Ukraine, as we know, um, of having engaged in acts of genocide itself against ethnic Russians in Ukraine. We know, as Marco uh, reminded us, that's one of the legal justifications that Putin has invoked for the actions that Russia is taking now. So what is the what is Ukraine really asking the court to do here? Um, they would they, they want this is on the merits now, but, and then I want to turn to the provisional measures. But on the merits, Ukraine would be asking the ICJ to declare that contrary to what Russia has been saying, no acts of genocide have taken place in Luhansk or Donetsk. So in essence, this is a request by Ukraine that the court find a non-violation of the Genocide Convention by Ukraine, rather than what we typically see, which would be one state asking the ICJ to find that a different state, another state, is in violation of the Genocide Convention. Uh, so this is pretty unusual for the ICJ. There's a couple of, of cases in the past where states have made similar types of requests, although I don't think either of those examples is quite perfect. Um, people have pointed to the rights of nationals in Morocco case from um, ages ago, and then slightly more recently, the Lockerbie cases um, back in 1992. But there are some important differences there as well. So I'm not sure that they're all that useful. Mike, can I just come in here? Um, so on Ukraine's request for the court to make a declaration of non-violation, in one sense, I agree with you that it's unusual. But in another sense, actually, it is usual. What I mean by that is that it's unusual for the applicant state to ask the court to do this. But it's always the case that the respondent state asks the court to do this. So in that sense, the power of the court actually to make a, non, a declaration of non-violation is in one sense actually pretty standard. If you look at the Bosnia genocide case, it, it, it's in fact the very first thing the court says. Bosnia has not violated through its, the acts of its agents or organs the genocide convention. So it's sort of separate. It's interesting to separate out the power of the court from the ability of the applicant to make to seize the court to do this, if you see what I mean, right? Because clearly the court does have the power and has in fact done this to make declarations of non-violation. Yes, that's right. So the fact that it's unusual, I don't think actually makes it problematic. I think Ukraine has described something that is a dispute that would fall within Article 9 of the Genocide Convention. Um, but then Ukraine goes beyond that because they don't only want this finding of non-violation. They also want the courts to declare that the actions that Russia has taken on the basis of these false accusations uh, constitutes um, a kind of violation. And they want the court to declare that that also is therefore um, unlawful or unjustified. 
All of that is a kind of a declaratory relief that uh, Ukraine is seeking. And then on top of that, Ukraine is asking the court for reparations for all the damage that Russia has caused and will have caused based on the actions that it has taken, all flowing from this bad faith invocation by Russia of the Genocide Convention and implicitly uh, Russia's obligation to prevent acts of genocide under Article 1. So will that work? Uh, I think that Ukraine's non-violation point might actually work. I'm more skeptical about whether the court, if this goes ahead to the merits, would would you know actually further address the broader consequences of Russia having acted on the basis of these unfounded claims. If they were to address that, I think they would do it in a pretty limited way. So, for example, to affirm that the obligation to present to prevent genocide under Article One of the Convention doesn't give parties the right to resort to the use of force. And that's not really different than what the court has already said previously in the Bosnian genocide case. Yes, I think, you know, there's an interesting jurisdictional point in relation to Ukraine's further claims, right? So Ukraine's Ukraine's further claims are saying that Russia is using force on the basis of this bad faith interpretation of the Genocide Convention. and But it does raise the question about whether or not any Russian obligations not to use force to prevent genocide, whether those are actually um, disputes relating to the interpretation or application of the Genocide Convention. Because you could see an argument that says, well, you know, the, the legal justification for using force that Russia is putting forward is some kind of humanitarian intervention argument which is independent from the Genocide Convention, right? So imagine if it were the UK. You know, the UK has a humanitarian intervention. Um, they, they take the view that humanitarian intervention is lawful, and they take that view if it was genocide that was being committed. But in the UK's view, that's not based on the Genocide Convention, at least to the best of my knowledge. That's just based on, as they see it, the law relating to the use of force. So I suppose the court would have to you know, they'd have to decide whether this is really a right that Russia is asserting is based on the Genocide Convention, in which case, yes, there would be a dispute about the Genocide Convention, or is it something that's based on something else? I think what the court would, if the court decided to even go there, they would make a very ICJ-type statement, which would be a, a very limited and kind of generic statement along the lines of saying that... Um, Article 1 of the Genocide Convention cannot justify the use of force, and they would refrain from, I think, weighing into any broader arguments about what that means for a purported right to humanitarian intervention more generally. I don't think they they would want to, and they wouldn't have jurisdiction to, to deal with that in a more general sense anyway. I think this is all true. The key point here really is that Ukraine doesn't want to win this case on the merits. This is not the point of this is. The whole point is provisional measures. So the, okay. the issue is whether they have enough to win on provisional measures. And while there are, you know, many, many tomes have been written about the various inconsistencies in the various standards the ICJ uses on provisional measures stage. And, you know, I, I, I don't know. What, what do you think, Mike? I mean, I, I don't see how the court could say no. Like right. in the context we're in, how could they say no? The issue is what exactly will they issue? What kinds of provisional measures will they order? So there's a, the provisional measure. I agree. It's, this is really about the provisional measures. I mean, 
a judgment on the merits wouldn't come for years and years, and this is about what's happening right now. Um, a, a big difference between the procedure for provisional measures and the kind of bigger questions about you know, can the court issue a de- declaratory relief on a non-violation. When you come to provisional measures, these have to be indicated to preserve the respective rights of either party. That's the language of Article 41. And so when I first saw this, I thought, well, what what exactly are the rights that Ukraine is putting forward here? And they refer to two different rights in the provisional measures request. They talk about a right. So a right rooted in the genocide convention itself, not to be subject to a false claim of genocide. And then building on that, a right not to be subjected to another state's military operations on its territory based on a brazen abuse of Article 1 of the convention. So those are not rights, I would say, that you can find in the text of the Genocide Convention. You have to uh, infer them from the text and the overall the object and purpose of the convention. So, you know, what I would be what I will be looking for when the court hears these arguments uh, next week and when the court issues its order is how does the court deal with this doctrine of plausibility of rights that it has developed over the last 10 years or so. Because I think in normal times, that would maybe be an issue here. These rights that Ukraine is uh, asserting that that it thinks it can find in the Genocide Convention, are they plausible? But we're not in normal times. And I think the plausibility doctrine is ambiguous enough, and the court has maybe intentionally left it ambiguous enough to give the court some flexibility here, especially because of the gravity of the situation and the risk of irreparable harm is is so substantial. So I think the court, as you are saying, Marco, the court can't, it would be very difficult for the court to not do something. And I think the court will be inclined to offer, um, to indicate some type of provisional measure, to find some way to act within the confines of the normal test that it applies for provisional measures. So let's fast forward to past the hearing next week and then the court making its decision and, as you know, Mike predicts, issuing some kind of provisional measures, even if not exactly the ones that Ukraine requests. Uh, Russia will, of course, ignore um, the court's order. And what's the route under the Charter? It's to report that to the Security Council, where, uh, going back to our earlier discussions, uh, of course, Russia is there wielding the veto, not abstaining. So we we kind of end up back um, where we are, but with, you know, another principal organ of the UN having made um, a, a statement, a, a binding statement in law against, at least technically, against Russia and, you know, correcting a false narrative, all of which are important as well, but not leading to, to action under Chapter 7. Um, so we come back to this question, do we need something new? What, what can other bodies do? So the ICC has announced that it's opened an investigation. Strikingly, um, I think 39 states at last count referred uh, the, the situation to the ICC. Um, but, of course, there are jurisdictional restrictions. What we have is a new proposal for uh, a special tribunal um, being announced today. Uh, and I want to turn to Dapo to, to tell us about that idea. Yeah, so, you know, the ICC has jurisdiction with respect to war crimes, crimes against humanity, and um, genocide with regard to Ukraine on the basis of Ukraine's declaration. 
but it does not have jurisdiction with respect to the crime of aggression. Um, and that's for, for a couple of reasons, not least because Russia is not a party to the Rome Statute and the Kampala Amendment excludes jurisdiction on the basis, uh, jurisdiction over acts of aggression committed by nationals of a state that's not a party to the statute or, or on its territory. And also because the other route f to get the crime of aggression before the ICC would be via the Security Council, and of course Russia would veto that. So then the question is, is there anything that can be done with respect to aggression? And this proposal is one under which essentially Ukraine, which does have the crime of aggression on its statute books, essentially delegates jurisdiction over that crime um, of aggression that it has jurisdiction over to an international tribunal that is composed and, and supported by Ukraine and possibly a few other other countries. So this would be one way of actually um, getting possibly some adjudication on what's at the core of what's going on here, because the core of it, as we've been talking about, is aggression. And this is still within the, the sort of international legal landscape when we think about crimes. It's just that the, the means for prosecuting it are not present. So this is a way to try to create that means um, outside of the context of the ICC. So that's the basic idea. Well, but then Dapo, the problem is this. If, if this new tribunal is simply a creature of Ukraine and a couple of other states, we run into the problem that a certain scholar, I think, called Dapo Akande, <laughs> often referred to, which is the issue of immunities, that these, that these states cannot create an organ that has more powers than they, they themselves have. And if Ukraine cannot try Vladimir Putin as a hit, sitting head of state who has personal immunities, then neither can a, a tribunal that was established by Ukraine. And I also remember this scholar Dapo Akande saying that the mere fact that there's an international tribunal doesn't mean that immunities don't apply. So the bottom line, sorry for being skeptical, but the bottom line again is that until there is regime change in Russia and the Security Council is unblocked, if that ever happens, all these initiatives do are simply symbolic. It doesn't mean that's not important. It is very important. But the prospect of high-ranking Russian officials being tried before these new special tribunals seems very remote. As remote as simply the council referring, as it could, uh, Russian aggression to the ICC. So, I mean, you raise a couple of, of points which are different. So they're the legal questions which you raise, which I'll come to in a moment. And then they're the more practical questions that you raise. So let me start with the practical questions, right? So you, you could ask exactly the same questions in relation to the ICC. What's the prospect of actually getting custody over uh, individuals and, and trying them in the future? First thing is, of course, you never know, right? You just never know. I think you would have said that if you go through human history, well, not human history, the history relating to international criminal law, you could have said that at every point in time. You know, at the time when they started to talk about criminal jurisdiction for Nuremberg, which was 1942, which is a very bleak time, you could have said exactly the same thing. At the time when the ICTY was being set up, you would have said exactly the same thing in relation to the principal characters in the Yugoslav war. Um, in relation to Sudan at the ICC, you know, you could have said exactly the same thing. So it's always worth, you know, giving these things a go because you never know. 
Secondly, on the practical front, um, you know, with respect to the ICC, you're thinking about war crimes, you're thinking about crimes against humanity. As we know, these are not always that easy to show when you're thinking about senior leaders because you're going to have to connect the acts of people at the top to very specific conduct. And if you look at the ICC, we've had nearly as many acquittals as we have had convictions. It's just not that easy. Oddly enough, actually, aggression is probably easier, probably a lot easier to prove in this scenario than would be the case for war crimes and, and crimes against humanity. It depends. Well, you know, it depends. So that, that, those are the sort of practical points. Now, on the legal points and, and on the immunity one in particular, obviously, good point. I think it's probably fair to say that the rain, there's a, those are, those people who are sort of involved in this might have a range of views around the immunity question. So there'd be some people who take the view that international tribunal, Therefore, no immunity for heads of states and, you know, foreign ministers, etc. The sort of line that the ICC took in the Bashir case, I do not, as you know, take that view. There'll be some people who take the view that if you have enough states that support, you know, if you get enough, then it becomes sufficiently international and it's kind of exercising the use peniendi of the international community. I do not take that view. However, I do think that it is significant that Ukraine is involved and, and that it is significant that um, it's a delegation of Ukrainian jurisdiction because, and this is something that I've, I've written about as well, while I don't take the view that there's universal jurisdiction over Ukraine, I do think that, uh, sorry, over aggression, I do take the view that the territorial state is able to exercise a sort of self-help jurisdiction in relation to aggression, not least because it has the right of self-defense. So if in the exercise of its right of self-defense, it can actually use force, including on the territory of the aggressor, it can even change the government of the other state if necessary in the exercise of the right of self-defense. It could you know, even kill the commander-in-chief of the other state. It would seem to me to be ridiculous to say, but the only thing it must not do, it must not try put on a trial. Right. So I think that there's something there. And I, and I would say that the same thing applies also in relation to, to immunity, that in relation to immunity, if you are the, the victim state, it would be not prohibited, let's put it that way, in the exercise of a sort of self-help right, which follows from your right of self-defense, to exercise jurisdiction, including over those that would ordinarily have immunity. These are all valid points. I would just remark that Serbia, in 1999, did initiate domestic prosecutions against Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. Uh, you can see how successful those were. <laughs> they didn't have Dapo Akanda advising them. <laughs> um, Dapo, I really want to believe that this is going to, to work and, you know, to have some glimmer of hope as we've talked about um, the blockages that we see in, in other routes to coercive action and accountability. But I, I just have two questions on it. This self-help um, aggression-based uh, exception does seem to be importing a gravity component into the availability of immunity, something that's been consistently rejected, at least for personal immunity of the highest leaders. Um, and the second point is the ILC in its work on the immunity of um, foreign officials um, from criminal jurisdiction 
as as you well know, uh, when drafting draft Article Seven, there was a big debate of whether there could be a, cr- a territorial crime exception. So it sort of n- not aggression wasn't directly mm. debated, but the sort of some of the same arguments. What if you do something on our territory that trumps um, the uh, immunity that you would otherwise enjoy? And that led to great controversy within the ILC and was ultimately not included in draft Article 7. Yeah, no, th- those, are, those are good points. But, I mean, the arguments that I've just been making are very specific to aggression. And they're very specific because, as I say, they they follow on from the measures that a victim state would normally have available. As I say, you know, in the exercise of your right of self-defense, you can do all of these other things. You know, you can change the government. So what's the reason why immunity ratione personae, to my mind, the strongest reason for immunity ratione personae persisting is that it prevents states actually from engaging in regime change. Because if you didn't have immunity ratione personae for the head of state, the head of government, effectively what you're saying is that a state can change the government of another state. But when you're the victim of an act of aggression, or just even more generally, when you're exercising the right of self-defense, you are not debarred from changing the government of the other state, insofar as, of course, it is necessary to, to do so. And in the case of an act of aggression, that would probably be, be the case. So it's very specific uh, in relation to aggression, and it's it's trying to tie in what we know about the what a victim state can do when it's exercising the rights of self-defense, generally, with what it can do with regard to prosecutions for this crime. So I had one question, Dapo, on the uh, the, the theory you're putting forward. There, it, it seems to me that if you, if I understand your your point correctly. That would mean that you you could prosecute a foreign leader during that same period of time when you're also entitled to use force in self-defense, so while hostilities are ongoing. But it also seems to me that if you are no longer in a position to be able to use force in self-defense, your argument um, maybe wouldn't work, that the, the, the normal kind of situation of immunities would fall back into place. Yeah, so that's a that's a good uh, question, Mike. And I think it depends on how exactly you construe the point that I was making. So I use the term self-help. And, and the reason that I use that is because th- there are two things actually that um, one is talking about here. So one, there's the self-defense point, and that's exactly where your question comes in. And then the other one is one which is relating to a, a countermeasures argument. Um, a, deprive, a denial of immunities for reasons of, of countermeasures. But, you know, that's a good question, and I'm going to have to think uh, very carefully about how to merge those two points that I'm making. I should say, though, I mean, this is me speaking, of course, in my own personal capacity. These are my own views, um, not necessarily the views of everybody who's involved in this, and not least, not necessarily the views of, of the government of Ukraine. So along the theme of new ideas, um, the the last one I want to cover is the prospect of a commission of inquiry. And I think this is something the Human Rights Council is discussing today. Uh, Mike, can you tell us what's happening on that front? Sure. So uh, throughout the week, uh, a significant number of states have called for the Human Rights Council to establish a commission of inquiry. And we have a draft resolution, so this is being debated right now, but I think from the draft resolution, we have a, a pretty reasonable idea of what this is going to look like. And by the time people are listening to this podcast, um, we'll probably know. So it looks like this will be a kind of hybrid model. 
that combines the, the type of elements that are very typical of the commissions of inquiry that the Human Rights Council has established many times over the past 15 years with the new kind of model that we've seen in a few cases, the investigatory mechanism model. We currently have those types of bodies for um, Syria, for Myanmar, and for crimes committed by uh, the Islamic State. The investigatory mechanism model is focused exclusively on collecting and preserving evidence with a view to supporting future prosecutions, whether in domestic or international courts. Whereas the more typical commission of inquiry has a broader mandate to investigate uh, all violations and abuses of international human rights law, as well as international humanitarian law, and to go beyond that and look at the circumstances or root causes of violations and to make recommendations about accountability mechanisms. So a typical commission of inquiry and an investigatory mechanism, there are big differences there because a commission of inquiry is a kind of public diplomacy, I would say. It's high profile. They'll publish um, periodic reports, whereas an investigatory mechanism would normally be working a little bit more quietly. A lot of its work would be confidential, and it would have different concerns in terms of um, chain of custody with respect to evidence and meeting uh, very high evidentiary standards if that material is actually going to be useful in future um, prosecutions. But what we see here is what looks like an effort to combine both of those elements in the draft resolution. So we see a mandate that looks like it's going to include both that broad um, uh, task of investigating all violations and abuses relating to human rights law, IHL, but also a mandate to collect, record, and preserve evidence. So whether those two types of mandates should be combined here is, is maybe a question. Okay, Mike. So, so yes, of course, this has been done, these types of mechanisms many times before. But if we're going to have a criminal investigation type mechanism, why not simply use the institution that's already there, that already has jurisdiction, that's the ICC, and just give them $100 million or however many resources they need to do their job properly? Why create a whole new thing? I think there are two, uh, two reasons, um, or two justifications to have the Commission of Inquiry in response to that. So one, the Commission of Inquiry doesn't have to be limited to only establishing whether international crimes are taking place. It can have a broader mandate. It can look at human rights abuses that don't necessarily fall within the confines of international crimes that the ICC can deal with. So that's one point. The second point is that to the extent it does have this investigatory mechanism um, type of mandate, that's part of what it's doing, preserving and collecting evidence, that uh, those criminal files, let's say, that the, or that the Commission of Inquiry is putting together don't only have to be things that can be then shared with the ICC down the road. These can be used for um, domestic prosecutions, for example, as well. And so um, it's not so clear that material that the ICC investigators might be gathering or compiling could also be shared in that way. So when it comes to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think we can all feel quite helpless, if not hopeless. So much of what we talked about ends up in the conclusion, well, it would be symbolic, or well, this is blocked by a design made in 1945 or 1922, and until we have regime change in Russia, there's not much that can be done. 
But I think the latter half of our discussion has shown that we can be creative about existing institutions, uh, and that may have an effect with a multi-pronged approach. And we can also explore new institutions, new ideas. And I'm sure this discussion will continue on the blog in future episodes um, and in other fora. So thank you to Rebecca and Mike for joining us, and uh, we will continue the conversation. Thanks for tuning in. To stay up to date with what's happening in the world of international law and to listen to previous episodes of the podcast, visit egiltalk.org.